Good morning. So I'm going to introduce to you like some op research, like uh, some some research into some right wing figures. Uh, I was gonna. I'm gonna show you two clips because often with often with the phenomenon known as like the e celebrity, you find some some people have heard all too much about these people, whereas the majority of people don't know who they are at all. So I'm gonna try and give you two clips that will give you a a flavour. So Miss London is a, uh, one among array, uh, this, this array of YouTube's Blair White imitators. Uh, if you're not familiar with Blair White, the original, um, original figure in this, in this kind of a procession of imitation is known for her combination of trashy aesthetics and hard right politics. She was critical of President Donald Trump in his first year of office for not being harsh enough on immigration, for instance. But what distinguishes White from any standard issue Fox News host is her abrasive approach to her own self-described transsexuality. White is reliably emphatic that her dysphoria is a pathological curse she wishes there was a pill to cure her of, and has spoken critically uh, concerning pioneering treatments of trans kids. She also distances herself from the trans community on the basis of what she considers its distasteful normalization of sex work. 
And like a catchphrase, like a catchphrase, Blair White repeats that she was born male and will die male no matter what she does. We should probably talk about popularity for a moment. So this approach to um, this approach to sort of uh, a native informant on transsexuality has earned White over 500,000 subscribers, placing her among the top 10 uh, most popular trans users of that platform. This formula of a conventionally gender-presented transsexual dispensing harsh um, contrarian perspectives and glorifying um, placing uh, herself, in this case, uh, at odds with her community, has proven easily enough replicable for those embarking on YouTube careers. Um, although none have quite uh, approached equivalent success uh, to white, these audiences are still sizable and quickly amassing. So in the numbers game, um, for instance, you can maybe see that, like um, Miss London began this ac account last year and has now reached 65,000 followers. So the variations within these kind of imitators are mostly um, to do with what they try and play up. So some take the approach of tacking even further right than Blair White does and like more overtly um, courting the alt-right, styling themselves as traditionalists um, and generally trying to be like um, an extremely well-behaved uh, uh, transsexual trad wife. So another uh, um, uh, attempts at kind of attempt attempting a more centrist approach to sort of Blair White's uh, approach have usually failed. Um, a YouTuber called Theron Mayer, as an, uh, Theron Mayer sorry, um, is one example, as the, the fan base of this material is normally um, on the hard right and very assertive. Um, so of this flourishing minor industry of monetized right-wing gender theory, I selected Miss London to show you two clips from, as I feel like she distills one of the key aspects of White's popularity, and that is a hardline foundationalism on the division between sex and gender. Um, so, taking, so taking sex as an objective natural feature and gender as this um, more kind of social malleable thing. Um, and in the case of London, this kind of seems to be the overriding concern of her takes. When not addressing her own experiences and the typical confessional style of the website, London is laser focused on attacking trans trenders. I think she, she uploaded another video on this topic just while I was preparing this talk. Um, you will not tend to see rants directed at foreigners uh, or sex workers or the left on her channel. It's not really her interest. Um, and in, in, contra in contrast to the kind of hostility that White expresses towards the trans community, London actually appears to have built up a small network of like-minded co-medicalists, as we saw in the first video there, um, several trans men included. Um, so right, the, the, the key site of controversy in her output is instead focused um, around a defense of the same contention uh, that Blair White made herself so famous with, that trans women are male, that the wish to transition is primar primarily best viewed as a mental health crisis, um, and that this is uh, the only way to make sense of changing one's gender, so kind of a medically overseen um, bureaucratized process. Um, you know, whereas queer freaks such as myself are eager to stress the flexibility of embodiment to center the outlier case and emphasize variations, um, you know, practice, perversion, things like that, and kind of this willful modification of the enfleshed state, the likes of White and London would rather double back to an irreducible distinction um, within which all of their transition is a kind of labour to veil up their underlying maleness, and that only appears on the level of appearance, never on essence. Uh, in this view, male and female exist apart, um, and as I said, there's just this kind of pathological condition called dysphoria that is the only thing that would inspire someone to legitimately try and swap from one to the other, at least on the level of appearance. So the main aim of my talk today uh, will not be kind of like j just a detailed examination of these figures, but basically what I'm trying to do is move us beyond a kind of simpler dismissal of this material uh, and this kind of figure 
and that unpalatable position. So the easy answer to this kind of output is simply to borrow the vocabulary of the old-fashioned uh, workers' movement. So this kind of actor is a reactionary. There have been advances objectively along um, their class or position, and now they're sort of attacking more vulnerable fractions um, of their own uh, positionality on a kind of political and subjective level. So that's kind of the reactionary uh, description. A fancier version of this is declaring that their reliance on male-female opposition is simply like um, intellectually outmoded. So when I call it foundationalist, that's often kind of just used as an attack by people who've been to grad school. And I feel like this is kind of, <laughs> I feel like that's an accurate enough description of what's going on. That's true, but it also falls somewhat short um, uh, by, way, by way of an analysis. Like it's not really, it's, it's not really getting us anywhere. So um, I think we can do a little uh, better than that. And today I'm going to propose a more imminent approach to this kind of material. Uh, and try and explore why these perspectives have proven relatively popular, indeed quite reliably popular, um, and then allow us to trace their extensions into left-wing perspectives so we can open up a more kind of critical uh, and hopefully not too paranoid approach. So, the term I propose for this, uh, which is in the title of my talk, is transrealism. So transrealism is what I'm going to be talking about today. Now, when I term these perspectives realist, of course, I do not mean that I personally accept that they are accurately describing reality. Um, I don't accept their claims at face value, um, and I don't think that they're simply reflecting the reality of male-female distinction. However, they're clearly appealing to it. So they're appealing to male-female gender-sex distinctions as this kind of pair of opposing truths, um, which apparently is supposed to be self-evident, even though you need to make dozens and dozens of videos explaining them over and over again. Right, so transrealism. <laughs> Transrealism begins with this kind of sex-gender distinction and then defines itself through doubling down in a defense of it. And the, the fact that this is a defense is a very interesting aspect. So it's kind of like the, the, um, the anyway, I'll get more into that. All right, so identifying perspectives like this not only as reactionary but as a particular realism will let us understand why this perspective becomes truly popular. And particularly, yeah, the issue is about like, like how do these, how, do, how does the core worldview operative here kind of transcend left-right distinctions quite ably? Like, for instance, with this material from London, she's a very able troll. Is she actually part of the political right? I'm not sure. I'd probably say not really. Um, so, right. Okay, so another example. So basically, the issue when we're coming to, like, left-wing transrealism is when I'm, when I'm talking about, like, my comrades, my fellow leftists, you have to be a bit kind of, like, a bit more precise, a bit more specific. So one example, um, which has kind of been disowned since by the people who, who wrote it, is uh, a zine called Mascara and Hope, um, subtitled Navigating the Frustration of Medical Transition for Trans Women in the UK. Um, and uh, I'm gonna just, gonna just focus on this for a little bit. Um, there's one visual in particular I wanna bring us to. Okay, wait a second. I can kind of skim through to give you some idea. Uh, barely feel any crippling dysphoria. There's some memes and all right. Where's this graphic? Yeah. All right. Okay. So um. So right. Uh, the mascara and hope zine is a kind of scurrilous labor of love written by several trans women, um, some of whom I know, uh, that offers practical advice towards British trans people navigating the National Health Service. A sardonic tone is adopted by the authors towards the seemingly commonplace uh, complaints that their advice is met with. Um, often, the authors of the scene would be met with the view that trans people don't need surgeries or don't need hormones in order to be trans. Um, and the zine kind of responds, to, responds quite aggressively to those minded this way um, by saying, you know, the guide simply isn't for them. And this is kind of a graphic of like a snowflake made out of middle fingers. Um, 
Pashnal or Snowflake, uh, which is kind of their, their response to this sort of anti-medicalist view on the left. Um, the left credentials of this text are most obvious in the fact that it is a zine, so it's following a kind of uh, the anarchist wing of left politics, um, culturally speaking. It's clearly informed by extensive experience with the frustrating process of attempting to extract adequate healthcare from an outmoded, socialised um, healthcare system, and it offers kind of quite concrete, specific advice in how to navigate everything from name changes to a healthy relationship with a category they introduce, like trans sisters. So a trans sister is someone who's appear roughly at the, the own, your own stage of transition, as opposed to a trans mum who's something like five to ten years further down the line. So I'm focusing on this example because this kind of mixture of sympathy, solidarity, consciousness raising type aspects, and then also a kind of abrasiveness in terms of style and certain, a certain kind of bleakness in um, terms of defining themselves against so-called snowflakes um, is quite is quite interesting. Like, and usually when I show this document to other um, trans people, they tend to have very mixed feelings because clearly it's like it, it's providing people with some um, assistance and some kind of like uh, help with their lives, but it's also sort of dosing in this heavy level of um, realism. So a recent and better known example of this kind of uh, material I'm talking with, to focus on an American writer, are the writings of Andrea Longchu, who's currently best known for taking to the pages of the New York Times to, descri to describe um, the process of SRS as creating a permanent wound um, for a vagina. And this is kind of a prime example of how realism does not necessarily respond, uh, correspond to any actual anatomical reality, but it's, it's an assertion of it, right, even if the, the reality isn't true. So that's only the most prominent example of a range of thinkers who actually have a really heterodox set of positions, uh, but are defined by kind of appealing to materialism, materialism of very, a very certain kind, um, in which they basically argue that materialism amounts to kind of outward appearance and apprehension of it, and, and kind of like gender comes up between those two things. So this same basic perspective can be found espoused um, online by everyone kind of like everyone from kind of self-styled internet Maoists to social democrats who want to have like a rigorous gender politics and clear priorities in which non-binary people's interests are normally downplayed and so on. So often these lines kind of counterpose the relative dangers faced by full-time trans women, um, such as myself, and non-binary people who would uh, usually not be taken by those they encounter to be transgender, right? So that's, that's the claim, that's the, that, that's the materialism that this kind of left trans realism has to offer. So a related development, if uh, rather more isolated, is this kind of minor network of trans turfs, uh, which previously had proliferated on platforms including Tumblr, but now especially in the United Kingdom are getting like, quite steady media gigs. So when it kind of comes to trans turfs, I don't want to go on about this for too long because there is a certain ambiguity about whether they belong to the left or whether they, uh, some of them, I are they even realists? I don't know, that's the thing we, I guess we can discuss. But basically, like, trans turfs will normally advance a standard radical feminist position on male-female um, just from an unlikely positionality. Um, right, and again, the, 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 the usual trans turf line is that there's like a trans community orthodoxy and they're like rebelling against, <laughs> rebelling against the norms of the trans community, right? So, which you can see in London, you can see in Blair White, you can see that. So it's like, this is the, the, the realism is specifically that they, they are delivering these harsh home truths and kind of slicing through the nonsense. Um, you know, get on your hormones, get whatever, get what you need and you know, in this case, or like whatever. So there, there's all these different kind of permutations. So, right, so obviously what all of this material share is kind of appealing to male and female as basic immutable and natural distinctions. And I think there's a kind of like politically transcendent commitment there, uh, and really no reason to think that this position is gonna be routed anytime soon. Indeed, it's exactly the successes enjoyed by queer viewpoints and queer theory that have made this material um, quite so widely appealing. 
exactly as perspectives that attempt to trouble and disrupt male-female as a sturdy objective observable boundary um, start to succeed, we inevitably see the kind of proliferation of those trying to reassert this distinction. Um, and those voicing this perspective are primarily cisgendered, uh, but the trans people who are happy to put forward these talking points can be assured a sizable enough audience, as I said, tens to hundreds of thousands, at least, to watch them do so. Um, right, so... You're about 15. Huh? You're about 15. Okay, all right, okay. Well, um... I'll go on for another bit. Okay, so um, right. So in the title of my talk, the full version refers to this as a kind of like a counter counterculture, um, and I think that this kind of aspect of defiance, um, which uh, appears in it, is kind of quite quite important. So this strand of popular culture relies at least on the notion of this kind of radical hegemony, which it's kicking back against. And I think this is what we could see in the form of the first video here. So this is a response video, quite typically. So they've identified a cringe-inducing social justice warrior, and then they respond in exasperation. This exasperation of the dry, the dry kind of minded realist, like rolling their eyes, like, why are you even talking? Um, and this is the kind of, um, all right, so I need to talk a bit about the audience here. So plenty of um, these figures have an audience um, which is primarily cisgendered. Um, so for in, in Miss London's videos, if we were to scroll through the comments, you can find innumerable ones saying, you know, finally, I found a transgender talking sense. This is great. Um, and that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of like obvious appeal of this sort of material. Uh, and this appreciative fan comes in from, they get kind of a dual joy from this stuff. So they have this, um, that their basic worldview in both senses of the word is kind of reaffirmed by someone who uh, is coming from the exact identity group which generally ch challenges this material. So there's a kind of transgressive thrill in watching a trans person opine um, while having them kind of shore up basically what you wanted them to say anyway. Um, and yeah, cisgendered connoisseurs of this material seem to be especially pleased at having achieved a kind of identity politics short circuit with a trans person espousing a view which supposedly their privileged positionality would push them against. So the, again, the first video is a, a prime example of that. So yeah, as a kind of Marxist, I don't find that especially threatening because that's not how I view epistemology. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but you know, they seem to think I do, right. Um, okay, but anyway, on trans people, right. So trans people who are fans of this material, I think is considerably more interesting because um, I think there's a kind of powerful appeal um, in this sort of material, which the Mascara and Hope zine kind of really demonstrates to me, right? So the appeal of trans realism for trans people is confronting the struggle of transition as something which has to be done actively. So transition is an activity, um, which I think this kind of material um, definitely shows up, right? Um, yeah, okay, so another, another aspect of it, which I guess I'll, I'll get into again. So again, this isn't sort of my position. I don't kind of believe in a true, authentic inner self, which kind of um, pervades and is there no matter what, but this is increasingly like a line you'll find from certain, certain wings of trans politics. And this is often what kind of um, people who are espousing this perspective are bumping up against, this idea that, well, if you're a, a trans female, you're a trans female, no matter what, you can have a beard, you can have any attire you want or whatever, and you're still a female on some deeper underlying level. And this is sort of what realists of whatever flavor are doing kind of pushback against. And I can kind of see why, like, the, the mismatch of appearance and, like, um, experience in all of this stuff kind of makes space for them. Um, right, so to put it another way, like, um, yeah, against a kind of essentialist view, transrealism instead uh, serves as a reminder that the actual experiences trans people are likely to encounter are starkly and very arbitrarily differentiated ones that are based around sexed appearance in many cases. And in a variety of ways, there's a kind of like safeguarding of this point, uh, of this basically, this underlying 
um, reality that transition is a kind of commitment and gender is a kind of field of, field of activity. Um, although it's interesting that like most trans realists would totally refuse this, this kind of rearticulation from me. They would kind of refuse that um, explicit account of what they're trying to get at. Okay, so... Um, right. I won't read that part out. Yeah, so I, I suppose the final thing I want to talk about is kind of the exact, the exact peculiar moment we're in and this kind of strange point for trans politics um, in which kind of trans culture and its unmistakably countercultural aspect is beginning to kind of be questioned and beginning to kind of become unclear. Uh, and this you can see in everything from kind of social democratic parties being one around to trans, represent, trans representation, especially in official bodies from NGOs uh, to global governance structures such as the UN, uh, to PR-minded diversity teams for private firms, like all of these different organizations are trying to at least make an appearance of being sort of trans-supportive, trans-inclusive. This is obviously an unsteady process as we see from the recent uh, best efforts of Donald Trump, but to just provide one illustrative example as a visitor to New York City, previously, um, as I'm sure you all know, like by law there was an effort to limit on how many cross-dressed items of clothing uh, a New Yorker could wear while on the streets. Um, so by the letter of the law, simply travelling around your daily business on femme or butched up would be enough to have you hauled away by the NYPD. By contrast, when I visited the campus of uh, NYU, visiting my friend Michelle, um, there are signs reminding me that by state law, um, state law kind of mandated that users of single-sex washrooms could use whichever matched their identity or presentation. So clearly, like, there's kind of legislative breakthroughs even in, um, yeah, even in places in the US where this is very kind of uneven and now federally opposed. So this kind of presents a certain crisis for trans culture uh, as it once existed. And um, yeah, and, and, it's, uh, and there's this kind of strange sublimation of a lot of these, these norms which had once been entirely countercultural in Providence into various kind of legislative and um, overarching forms. So I think in this context, it's kind of interesting to ask, like it's become less clear which, like what, are figures like Miss London or Blair White or whatever actually anti-establishment or which establishment are they opposing because I think it's not it actually isn't sufficient to just say they're reactionaries that are just totally reaffirming the, re reaffirming the existing order of things when there's such like a large NGO official private firm diversity complex sort of trying to support trans people in a particular way um, and that's something I'd like to discuss uh, during the questions um, but yeah okay so my conclusion is just that like for the time being much of the trouble around gender is going to play out as this series of trolling and language games and so on, and gender materialist freaks such as myself are sort of at the upper hand only insofar as we concede that this um, field of struggle is very often um, language and rewording and stuff like that at all. So um, while we're still developing revolutionary movements, often the best, we can, best thing we can kind of do is tell stories, cultivate contexts, scenes, uh, and experiences in which the limits of these dualistic divisions, which constantly need to be reasserted by trans realists, are unmistakably questioned. So I will leave it at that. Thank you very much. Hi, uh, so my name is Omnia Sol. Uh, I am an artist and uh, a editor at Red Wedge based in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and so I kind of want to talk about the phenomena of uh, what I call queer occultism, uh, which is this fascination within the queer community 
of the resurgence of um, occultism, New Age philosophies, and mysticism. Uh, as like most pe people are aware, there is like a fascination within uh, the LGBTQ plus community with things like astrology and tarot. And uh, so I want to kind of make the argument that like as materialists, we shouldn't necessarily uh, attack it as unscientific because this is kind of a, a resurgence of mythological thinking that one isn't, isn't going to go away, but two is, is interesting. And so I want to kind of like analyze it um, that the, the reason that there is queer interest in the occult is uh, one, ostracization from mainstream religions, but still having a drive for spiritual truth um, whatever that may mean through mythology. And then you also have the 60s counterculture uh, with psychedelics and the sexual revolution and people, you know, like exploring different sexualities and gender expressions. Um, but I also want to make the argument that magical thinking is inherent in the queer history of gay liberation. So this is the original um, gay flag. Uh, which, so we now have just like the standard rainbow flag as the, the gay flag, or in some places you'll see like a brown or, or black stripe added, but the original flag was by San Francisco artist Gilbert Baker, uh, and he associated a meaning with each color. So you had red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight, green for nature, blue for harmony and peace, violet for spirituality, which is, uh, and then uh, two colors that were later removed, pink for sexuality, and the turquoise stood for art and magic. Mm. Um, and then so also, uh, one I want to say that this talk is by no means going to cover the entirety of occult thinking because it's way too broad. And even the, the definition of occult just meaning hidden. Uh, so it's not even going to like touch on the kind of like African traditional religions or those like syncretic religions with Catholicism, but more uh, that I want to touch on that the core theories within the Western esoteric tradition um, contain mythological idealization of androgyny um, and that initiation within the occult based on finding balance within internal gendered energies. And this can be seen in the, the Kabbalion, which was originally published in 1908 uh, and is a book that claims to be the essence of the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus. So this is where like hermetic thought comes from. Um, and that, um, so within hermetic understanding of gender, everything is manifested within masculine and feminine energy, and that the goal of the hermeticist is to find internal balance between these two gendered energies found within the person. And this can be seen also in the tarot uh, with the card Temperance, which is Saint Michael, um, which is the archangel Saint Michael, who is represented as a hermaphrodite in the classical sense of the word, which is a child of Hermes and Aphrodite. So having this balance between these like gendered uh, forces that are seen like within nature. But I, I would kind of see that it's like more people kind of retroactively taking their own like ideas of gender and like forcing them on natural phenomena. Um, and the epitome of this can be seen in the Sabbath Goat by occultist Eliphas Levi, uh, which may, many know as um, Baphomet. Uh, so this is, this is kind of misconstrued as just simply being like the devil and like satanic worship. But within the occult and hermetic orders, uh, this is kind of seen as like a chief initiation ritual uh, where like it's uh, Salve, uh, 
coagula, which is this like alchemical formula of like taking one and then transitioning into the other. And so I would make the argument that Baphomet is, is a non-binary queer icon and uh, that it contains both one uh, male arm, one masculine, one masculine arm, one feminine arm, uh, and then you have the feminine breast, and then the, the phallus is also the, uh, the catechist from Hermes. Um, and then so I wanna talk about like kind of a, a Marxist response to queer occultism, and that I think we need to analyze and understand the phenomena of an occult revival within the queer community from an anthropological perspective, whereas uh, instead of being like, oh, magic doesn't exist, uh, anthropologists, when viewing like uh, cultures that believe in magic, will kind of like step outside and their their own belief system and will be like, okay, well, what, what if this does exist? Like, let's view it from their angle. Like, what's really going on here? Um, and recognizing uh, magical thinking within the formation of revolutionary consciousness within the working class subject. Because if we just take that, like, what we're given as reality, it can, uh, you know, student debt, just like crushing nine to five work if you can even get that these days. Um, but magical thinking allows the working subject to like actually take their reality into their own hands and say like, well, let's experiment what is actually possible um, and can like push against the dystopian narrative. Uh, and there, there's the, the classic quote, uh, I think it's, was it Terry Eagleton that, um, and other thinkers like Mark Fisher have expanded on this, that it's like easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And I think with uh, magical thinking, there is a potential to see beyond that and like imagine a reality that's not a dystopia. Um, and so uh, I think that the kind of queer occultism is not the enemy of Marxism and that although occultism is not scientific, uh, the fascination with astrology and the occult within the queer community reflects a lacking on the part of Marxists to present a mythology of the mysteries of existence that saturate the capacity of the human imagination. Occultism has a capacity to saturate uh, this imagination because by definition, occultism is undefinable. Um, the left needs new and more powerful myths through the creation of art and a focus on contemporary queer working class subjectivity. Um, denouncing magic as unscientific doesn't adds nothing to the liberation of queer people, but does limit our imagination for liberation by stripping us of symbolic language. And I want to touch on that there is a dangerous habit within the left to give up any and all symbolic language that uh, the white supremacist right touches. This can be seen in the co-opting of runes as symbols of white supremacy. So there's a rune for power uh, that is now in like countries where the swastika is outlawed. White supremacists will use that in place of the swastika. Um, uh, a rampant infiltration of white supremacy in neo-pagan neo communities, and this can be, be seen by people like who take kind of um, uh, di try to link occultism, which occultism is such like a mishmash of cultures. Like if you look at like one of the main texts that like a lot of Western occultism comes from is the uh, the. Uh, the Greek magical papyri, which is just a culmination of Greek magic, Gnostic magic, Egyptian magic, Christian and um, uh, Jewish magic, all kind of like put melted into one document, and it's all these these scattered texts. And so there's there's always been this uh, kind of 
dialectic between different cultures and spiritual beliefs, but then you have the white supremacists who are like, no, our magic is is real and is is from Odin, and we're the true, you know, Westerners or whatever that means. Uh, and you also see this with the kind of uh, co-opting of Pepe the Frog as an icon, which um, the like 4chan will kind of take the election of Donald Trump as this proof of their meme magic working. So they see Pepe as this like magical glyph of this like Egyptian god of chaos, Kep. And so the spreading of memes they see as like magical spells that got Donald Trump elected. Um, and but the the left response to that is like okay Pepe is now uh, icon of the right we can't do anything with it uh, to the dismay of the cartoonist who is not a white supremacist and is actually uh, taking the route of anyone using Pepe he's suing the shit out of them and then donating that money to uh, immigrants groups and like Muslim groups. Um, because he's he's like sick and he did a comic that was like the death of Pepe and tried to like put Pepe dying but that's the thing with memes is that they they don't die um, and so uh, I kind of want to end by taking that like in my opinion the best way for Marxists to better understand the queer fascination within the occult is to go back to the view of the occult through the lens of Luna Chartsky and the God Builders um, from the the Soviet Union so. Uh, Luna Chartsky posited that symbolism rit ritual served a necessary social and psychological role within human society. And so this is from his text, uh, Religion and Socialism, which he wrote in 1908. Uh, from the socialist point of view, the attitude of the proletarian movement towards religious organizations is built on the basis of their positions in the class struggle. Socialism looks at religious movements from a point of view of the common good, as well as physical, moral, and mental development, which implies the following. One, socialism is fighting against religious superstition and prejudices based on empirical knowledge of objective and subjective science. Two, socialism is fighting against religious intellectuals serving the bourgeoisie uh, just as with the secular intellectuals supporting the bourgeoisie. Three, socialism is alien to militant atheism based on opposing prejudice and violence against people. Four, socialist freedom also implies freedom of religion, an independent search for truth for every person. Five, socialism cannot dogmatically hold any positions on the statements God is or there is no God and takes the position of agnosticism or open possibilities. And six, that socialism unites secular and religious ideological groups in the struggle of the proletariat or for, for the proletariat. Any action aiming to merge socialism with religious fanaticism or militant atheism are actions aimed at splitting the proletariat, proletarian class, and have the formula of divide and rule, which plans in plays into the hands of the bourgeois dictatorship. So yeah. All right, great. So, hi, I'm Anya. Um, this is a great uh, taken for my talk. First, the um, you know, it's just real facts. Don't care about your feelings. Trans women are males thing, and then the uh, the need for um, a sacral orientation. 
let's say. Um, I'm going to be taking both of those on. Um, first, I'd like to say, first of all, it's my birthday. I'm 32. So this is like the best uh, birthday gift possible to be here with uh, comrades doing our work and pushing the project of the possibility of proletarian liberation forward. Um, and then I'd like to say that my talk is dedicated to everyone on the left who's had sexual assault or abuse inflicted on them by people who they thought were their comrades. And also to uh, Tessa Sarver, a comrade and friend who was murdered by the US prison system uh, for the crime of trying to survive in the world as a trans woman. Uh, may we achieve the free communist world she wished for soon and in our time. So, trans women, we kind of know that we have something to do with science fiction and space, right? I've had trans women close to me wish to me that they were aliens or that they were floating balls of light and talk about moving to Mars. Um, I identified more strongly as a child with the cyborg Major Kusanagi of Ghost in the Shell than with any living person, uh, which makes me perfectly stereotypical among uh, younger American trans women. Um, and that's a theme also taken up in the insistently cosmic work of Juliana Huxtable, New York's very own only important artist who happens to be a black trans woman. Uh, no shade to any important artists from New York in the room. Uh, you know, memes shared among young trans women on Facebook advertised the desire to establish gay communism in space. My own artwork turns towards cosmic totality at its, as its basic location, and I'd like to do some ecological dialectics in um, understanding why trans women might want to turn towards the whole of the cosmos as our basic location in terms of the mode of production, the political economy, and the society that we find ourselves trapped in. It's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> So let's celebrate our moment of the initial emergence of a communist theory devoted to transgender proletarians' liberation, which really has been happening right now, you know, among us, people here in this room, by refusing to take our attachments to science fictional and co cosmic themes as a meaningless or unexplainable aesthetic preference. Um, and there's a lot of things that we can say about this preference, that it reflects the disappearance of our history, the feeling among ourselves and others that we are brand new, um, that it has to do with our having to live in a space mentally and culturally of possibility as much as in the very dismal and limiting and punishing presence. But I think there's actually a fundamental chain of necessity that can be followed here, a dialectical unfolding that can be followed here. And I'm going to be using the work uh, loosely of Alfred Stone Rathel and of Ivald Ilyenkov. Vitig is going to pop her hand up and say hi. Um, 
this is going, this is rough, it's propositional, and it's going to be messy. So bear with me. Let's dig in. We're produced as people, right, by a human society that has no integrated self-awareness, no integrated self-control. It has no mutually integrated control over its own actions. It therefore constantly creates people who its ruling forces do not need or want to exist. That's us. And who its infrastructure cannot or will not support. Capitalist society creates trans women through the same broad mechanisms by which it makes people exclusively into the two sexes of cis, women, cis men and cis women with no room for anyone else. That is, it creates people who on the integrated level, on the level of the concrete, are women, who it presses into the service of the social abstraction of manhood. We are women on the level at which all of our social components, all of the terms of our personhood fit together and are unified in their interrelation and in their dialectically mutually constituted differences. And there may not be in that any one term of our sentence, quote unquote, of our concrete personhood which reads as woman. There may not be any node in our personhood that says, I am a woman. Yet the whole thing, its movement, registers us under the real social abstraction of capital W, woman. By necessity, therefore we are women. Right. And I, I should be very clear that I'm not talking about ideology here. That's only a part of it. I'm talking about abstraction, the separation of um, idea from action as um, a shaping mechanism of real life that shapes our bodies, that shapes our buildings, that shapes our, how we think, that shapes our whole society, right? Everything. So the social process of sexing people into men and women in the first place is a process of real, that is, in the world, not just in our heads, social abstraction. Man and woman are real socially instituted abstract categories. And what makes them abstract categories is that they are social categories which exist in the real chain of social phenomena in a continual state of being ripped out of place and then imposed on us back into our concrete being by the dominating social powers, by the dominating class powers. Because, you know, the ideas of each age will be the ideas of the ruling class, but it's, 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 it goes deeper than that. It goes into the infrastructure of our lives, right? So again, not just in our heads, not just ideology. In the medical system, for example, in the schooling system, in famously the bathrooms. So man and woman are real categories, real socially instituted abstract categories that are you know, created, um, that are created and recreated behind our backs, not intentionally, but behind our backs by the uh, structure 
of our um, of our society, the structure um, of our division of labor. Okay, and it's not enacted by particular individuals primarily or by specific social bodies primarily. It can be very personal. Somebody can come up to a trans woman and say, you're a man, and then beat her in the face. It's happened to me. But it is primarily impersonal, right? Uh, the obvious example is the surgical mutilation of the concrete physicalities of intersex children to fit the real social abstractions of man and woman. But it's dangerous to depend too much on an example like that because it underplays the extent to which this is a process that is deeply, deeply pervasive. And this for me is a valuable perspective both because simply at this point I think it's right, but also because it um, completely overcuts the split between uh, psychological gender and like, um, you know, social reproductive labor being where gender happens. Like, this is something that plugs into both. Capitalist society creates us, makes trans women, and then continually demands, why are, we, why are you here? Account for yourself. This unrefusable demand that we register ourselves to the social abstraction man, or if we must, and maybe on pain of death, the social abstraction woman, it comes at us personally, impersonally, at every level, from every source, from uh, the Social Security Administration, from our mothers, from tricks and random guys on the street. Um, waiters at restaurants. We are forced under great duress to constantly account and reaccount for ourselves. And that movement into understanding and presenting ourselves as women, actively registering ourselves to the abstraction of woman, is therefore a movement from the abstract, from the disconnected and socially isolated and one-sided to the integrated, the dialectically integrated. Our movement towards womanhood is a movement from the abstract to the concrete. Um, and when we have that moment, which some of us have in the course of coming out and transitioning, of rereading our whole lives as, wait, I was a woman, right? That's what's happening on a mental level. We are able to read our elements together, and finally it's a readable sentence, which again might, may not necessarily have the word woman in it. Um, in Ilyenkov, a concept is something that comes together through its elements. It's not one thing in itself. And most of us, though not all, I am taking the non-transitioning trans women are still women approach very hard here. I really believe that. Um, then take actions to move ourselves further into that concreteness. Therefore, where a turf might complain, oh, you're registering yourself to the abstraction of woman, therefore you're valorizing this abstraction. Well, we can't individually overthrow the abstraction, but we can cut away across it that makes our lives survivable and makes ourselves livable, right? How are these real social categories produced? 
Marxists invested in the liberation of women and of transgender people are familiar by now with the thesis that gender emerges from or with the division between productive and reproductive labor, right? Between labor that's out there, you know, producing value in some way and labor that reproduces and maintains the people producing value, that maintains the existence of the labor force, burps the babies, you know, fucks the boss, etc., etc. Um, but the harsh split between concrete, dialectically integrated social reality and the socially real dislocated abstractions up here, like woman, through which class rule is facilitated, requires another aspect of the division of labor in class societies. This is well, where Son Rethel really comes in. That's the division between mental labor and manual labor, the division between thinking and doing, right? Which is something that I think um, anyone in a position of being a, an identity minority or whatever really rubs up against really hard. Um, the products of mental laborers in this society become weapons of the ruling classes, right? And then at the same time, uh, the same mechanisms that are producing a split between, um, be, 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 between use values, things that we can use in the world, qualitative values, and the anonymous, homogenous value of commodities in the market, right? The same uh, that is creating a split between um, abstract labor, you know, that's out there, labor power being bought and sold, and the specific labors that we are doing, okay? I'm arguing that there is a split between the stuff of being a woman, which Wittig very problematically calls the feminine. Um, you know, shout out to any which women in the room. Um, and capital W woman, abstract woman, right? An abstract woman is possible because, not just some ideological process, but because of the way that thinking and doing are disintegrated from each other in class society, right? So we live in a world in which there is a sort of heaven and earth. There is an earth of everyday sensible things. You can touch them, you can taste them, and a heaven of the market ideas, you know, stuff up there, ghostly phenomena like femininity, right? Um, a society of this kind, as it engages in the development of humanity along class lines, produces a pr proletariat that is acutely alienated. Not only dispossessed of control over the means of production and the products of our labor, estranged from each other and estranged from ourselves and from the integrated concrete aspect of our own human species, but we are deeply fragmented through the division of labor into increasingly partial, one-sided, isolated human beings. Capital makes use of this fragmentation, which itself produces, 
and its abstract representation in the form of identities, not only to provide itself with laborers suited to all of its various functions, but also to set the proletariat against itself with certain groupings on top, like whites, like cisgender, like men, like abled people, to have a policing function against the rest of the class, right? And what these people get in return is humanity, but it is an upside down, inverted humanity because it is an abstract humanness, which is the height of numb, disembodied, disassociated alienation. Right? Which is defined by separation from its own concreteness and from other human beings. And defined by its deeply antagonistic relationship with nature, which is a capitalist relationship with nature as something that is separate from it. Right? So this society, the society that we live in, has an abstracted split relationship with the rest of the cosmos of which it is a part. Concretely, human beings are completely ecologically interwoven into a cosmos which brought us into being and without which we could not exist. Our life is natural life. Our history, machines and all, is natural history. When we speak of alienation, therefore what we are alienated from is our concrete metabolism, our interchange with the rest of the world of which we are a part. Right? On that alienated abstract level, as the abstract disembodied humanity which the day-to-day -day structure of capitalist life presses us into, we face capitalism's capital N nature as something opposed to us which exists only to be limitlessly extracted from and dominated. The abstract human being who gets to be on top in this society therefore sees everyone around him, experiences everyone around him as a void, as non-human beings, non-entity. This void is, of course, a tremendously familiar theme in modern art. The self-styled great artistic hero of revolutionary Russia, Kazimir Malevich, who... We're at Okay. Friends of mine uh, know I've had a long love affair with, set, up, set himself up as an avatar of the fusion between intuition and reason and of the new communist humanities movement out into the cosmos. He claimed that he was creating something entirely new by placing individual shapes in a white void, a non-objective art, right, which he claimed was new in that it was separating itself finally from the imitation of nature, uh, a sin that he ascribed to indigenous people, which I think is pretty significant. Uh, and he thought that this sort of creativity was uh, possible only now that we have finally dominated nature, finally dominated it separate from, separate from it, above it, right? 
Uh, I'll skip the most technical section of dialectics, no fatigue, I guess, that's fine. Um, so trans women ourselves experience ourselves through this upside down bourgeois conception um, of the world and through the abstraction of woman just as we are experienced that way by others. And therefore we experience ourselves through dissociation, gender dysphoria, bodily noise. And that's the negative aspect of our identification. Um, a painful internal noise that does map to the noise of the cosmos, the cosmic roar. But the positive is that the cosmos provides us with the image and reality of physical concreteness, which is neither the static, timeless goddess nature, and nor is it unnatural, nor is it a monster. The cosmos simply is everything that exists. So truly opening ourselves to identifying ourselves with and integrating thoroughly with the cosmos demands that we overcome the division of labor between head and hand, that we smash the social mechanisms of disembodied social abstraction, such as woman, which facilitate our subjugation. In other words, that we attain the integrated relationship with the world of which we are a part, which is only possible in communism. Right? Great. I think I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.